Well, good morning, everyone. Well, that was interesting. This is Granny D, Dorcas Smith, out of Plymouth, Smith, Michigan. I went to start the call and hung up on you. Ha! <laughs> Forgive me. All right. Welcome to the weight management or new skin weight management body burn 30 TR90 program and how to keep yourself healthy and well. Healthy and well. And it's not just about losing weight. It's also about keeping your body functioning and working at its most optimum level. Just wanted to tell you a little story about this weekend. Uh, we have a kerosene heater, and I touched it when I shouldn't have, and I got a, a burn on the tip of my finger. Go tea tree. I know new skin doesn't have tea tree anymore, but if you burn yourself, just keep slathering the burn with tea tree. I didn't have any major pain because of using the tea tree, and otherwise I certainly would have. And um, within three days, you know how when you get a, a, a burn, it bubbles, did not bubble, and uh, the skin has already come off and it's healing and there's almost really minimal pain. It was a little bit sore last night, so I put on tea tree again and an antibiotic. Oh, first of all, I dipped it in G3. Then I put on um, some tea tree and then I put on an antibiotic lotion and this morning uh, the new skin is forming beautifully. So just know that um, keep tea, even if though new skin doesn't have it anymore, do keep tea tree in your, in your um, pocket for emergencies. If you cut yourself and you put a bit of G3, not G3, tea tree on it, tea tree and G3 rhyme, isn't that interesting? Um, but the two of them together, really, I cut myself chopping some vegetables last week and it was not a big cut but it was just one of those little nicks that's uncomfortable and between the G3 and T3 it is healed beautifully all right so there I've gotten distracted again um, but I wanted to tell you about that because I think it's kind of cool next thing I'm going back to is where I'm reading from brain rules John Medina 12 principles surviving, thriving at work, home, and school, and we've been working on memory. Now, there's short-term memory and there's long-term memory. So I just want to go back to short-term memory or what we might call working memory. So when you're working memory, this is the, the memory that you need to pull together information, and if it stays long enough and it's important enough and it has the information and or an emotional side to it, you chances are you'll remember it. But working a memory has three components. The first component allows us to retain some auditory information. So it is assigned the information that is a linguistic. All right. The second component is the visual information. So this memory register is assigned to any images and spatial input that the brain encounters. The third component is a controlling function called central executive, which keeps track of all the activities throughout working memory. For example, one of the reasons that uh, Nadorf, N-A-J-D-O-R-F, the 
um, chess player was able to play his games blindfolded is because his visual memory, he was able to visualize each game, his auditory memory, because his opponents were forced to declare their moves verbally, and this central executive allowed him to separate one game from another. So later on, actually badly, is the scientist who, and his name is, um, hold on, Alan Badley, B-A-D-D-E-L-E-Y. And he said there's a fourth component called an episodic buffer. And these are assigned to stories a person might hear. The buffer has not been investigated extensively, but regardless of that, a, a number of parallel systems ultimately have been discovered and researchers agree that they all share two important characteristics. One, all have a limited capacity and all have a limited duration. So the important thing is when they're short in duration, you can lose the information pretty quickly. So that's why it's called short-term memory. So when you're doing something, working at focusing at that information, like if you're doing five things at once, that's when your short-term memory is going to get overloaded and you're not going to remember things. So there's really a big process process of taking something from short-term to long-term memory. And the process for converting short-term memory traces to longer, sturdier forms of memory is called consolidation. And that's what we're going to look at today. There's consolidation and retrieval, but we're just going to work on consolidation today. At first, a memory trace is flexible, liable, and subject to amendment, and at great reach and at great risk for extinction. Most of the inputs we encounter in a given day fall into this category, but some memories stick with us. Initially, they're fragile, and these memories strengthen strengthen with time and become remarkably persistent. They eventually reach a state where they appear to be infinitely retrievable and resistant to amendment. As we shall see, they may not be able they may not be as stable as we think. Nonetheless, we call these forms long term memories. Like working memory, there appears to be different forms of long term memory, most of which interact with one another. Unlike working memory, however, there is not much agreement as to what those forms are. Most researchers believe there are semantic memory systems which tend to remember things like your aunt Martha's favorite dress or your weight when you were in high school. Most also believe there is episodic memory in charge of remembering episodes of past experiences complete with characters, plots, and timestamps, like your, 25, your 25th high school reunion. One of its subjects is autobiog- autobiographical memory, which features a familiar protagonist, you, 
We used to think that consolidation, the, mem- the mechanism that guides this in transformation into stability, affected only new acquired memories. Once the memory hardened, it never returned to its initial fragile condi- condition. However, this is not what is considered correct anymore. Consider the following story, which happened when Medina was watching a TV documentary with his then six-year-old son. It was about dog shows. And when the camera focused on a German shepherd with a black muzzle, an event that occurred when he was about the age of his son, it came flooding back into his awareness, and he had forgotten it. In 1960, our backdoor neighbor owned a dog, and he neglected to feed the dog every Saturday. In response to hunger cues, the dog always bounded over our fence precisely at 8 a.m. every Saturday, ran towards our metal garbage cans, tipped out the contents, and began a morning meal. My dad got sick of this dog and decided one Friday night to electrify the can in such a fashion that the dog would get shocked if his wet little nose so much as brushed against it. The next morning, my dad had awakened our entire family to observe this hot dog show. To dad's disappointment, the dog didn't jump over the fence until about 8.30, and he didn't come to eat. Instead, he decided to come and mark his territory, which he did in several points around the backyard. As the dog moved closer to the can, my dad started to smile and then the dog lifted his leg to mark the garbage can. My dad exclaimed, Yes, you don't have to know the concentration of electrolytes in a mammalian urine to know that when the dog marked the territory on our garbage, on Medina's garbage can, he also completed a mighty circuit. His cranial neurons ablaze, his his reproductive future suddenly in serious question, the dog howled, bound back, bounded back to his owner. The dog never set foot in Medina's backyard again. In fact, he never came within a hundred yards of Medina's house. Our neighbor's dog was a German shepherd with a distinct black muzzle, just like the one in the television show he was now watching. He had not thought of this incident in years. What physically happened to his dog memory when summoned back to awareness? There is an increasing evidence that when previously consolidated memories are recalled from long-term storage into consciousness, they revert back to their previously labile, labile, unstable natures, acting as if a newly minted, acting as if newly minted into working memory. These memories may need to become reprocessed if they are to remain in a durable form. That means the hot dog story is forced to restart the consolidation process all over again every time it is retrieved. This process is formally termed reconsolidation. These data have a number of scientists question the entire notion of stability of your human memory. If consolidation is not a sequential one-time event, but one that occurs repeatedly every time a memory trace is reactivated, it means permanent storage exists in our brain only for those memories we choose not to recall. That's really interesting. The ones that we don't choose to recall, but they're back in there, 
Oh, he says, good grief. Does this mean that we can never be aware of something permanent in our lives? Some scientists think this is so. And if it is true, the case he's about to make for repetition in learning is ridiculously important. All right, I'm going to do this anyway. Let's get on to retrieval. Like many radical university professors, our retrieval systems are powerful enough to alter our conceptions of the past while offering nothing substantial to replace them. How exactly this happens is an important but missing piece to our puzzle. Still, researchers have organized the mechanisms of retrieval into two general models. One is passively imagines libraries and the other aggressively imagines um, crime scenes. In the library model, memories are stored in our heads the same way books are stored in the library, and retrieval begins with a command to browse through the stacks and select a specific volume. Once selected, the contents of the volume are brought into consciousness, conscious awareness, and the memory is retrieved. This tame process is sometimes called reproductive retrieval. The other model imagines our memories to be more like a large collection of crime scenes, complete with their own Sherlock Holmes. Retrieval begins by summoning the detective into a particular crime scene, a scene which invariably consists of a a fragmentary memory. Upon arrival, Mr. Holmes examines the partial evidence available based on inference and guesswork, and the detective then invents a reconstruction of what actually is stored. In this model, retrieval is not the passive examination of a fully reproduced of a fully reproduced, vividly detailed book. Rather, retrieval is an active investigative effort to recreate the facts based on fragmented data. So that means that when you are remembering stuff, old memories can get modified and you can change them, which is correct. The surprising answer is both. Ancient philosophers and modern scientists agree that we have different types of retrieval systems. Which one, may, which one we use may depend upon the type of information being sought and how much time has passed since the initial memory was formed. This unusual fact requires some more discussion. And I'll do that next week when I read with you about this. But just know that sometimes, okay, so you're pulling up an old memory. You think that you remember everything, but... The Sherlock Holmes of you realizes that you don't have all the information. And sometimes your new memories get tied in with the old memories and they get recreated as another new memory. So sometimes your stuff that you remember is not really what it was. Your new memories have been implied over it. So the memory you had when you were 16 may not be the same when you're 50 or when you're 60 because your memory has been modified by your experience. I think that's really interesting. Okay. Thank you for listening today. Sorry we got off to a little bit of a late start. Sorry I hung up on you. (laughs) There you have it. I want to thank Brian for organizing as he normally does and keeping our system going.
Frank Lomas for, for, for recording everything. And at 10 o'clock, which is in a few minutes, we will have One Team Global if you want to build a business in New Skin. I hope you have a great week. Next week, we'll be working on understanding more about how the brain works. Just know that my focus, even though everybody, you know, we're all focused on being well, the most important part of your body, well, one of the most important parts is your brain. It takes up 20% of the blood supply. It's what keeps you going. So part of why we do TR90 and we exercise and we do all the things that we can do is so our brain can function well. So getting memories in from short-term memory to long-term memory is a whole lot more volatile than you thought. And if you want to remember something, remember. Repeat to remember and remember to repeat. Repeating things over and over again will help you remember so much better. Okay? Thank you for listening today. This is Dorcas Smith, Granny D, out of Plymouth, Michigan. And let's not hang up on you before I'm, I log, I close this call. You did a great Thank you. You did a job of recovering on your feet. That separates the wheat from the chaff. You're the wheat, not the chaff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Learning how to recover on your feet is very important, and I'll take the compliment. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. <laughs> Yes, you've got to be able to act. So everybody have a great day. God bless. Tomorrow is Nikki's um, Zoom day, so be ready to get on the Zoom call or be prepared to listen through Brian's brilliance um, with how he connects the Zoom. I have an, an I had a new operating system go on to my Apple um a couple of weeks ago, and all of a sudden, Zoom wasn't working again, and I had to redo the whole thing. I think I've got it going again, but it took me quite a little bit of learning and, and working on my feet to try and make it work. So don't give up struggling. If you're not struggling, there's something wrong with you. So if you're struggling, then you're perfectly normal and healthy. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, thank you.